We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. And uh, today we have Matthew Morrissey on the line. Matt is um, a uh, psychologist and counselor um, calling us from San Francisco. And the theme for today's show is going to be what is psychosis. Uh, Matt has had personal experiences um, with going through states of madness. And he's also um, someone who has worked um, with many, many people um, from an alternative perspective, um, helping them go through extreme states. And um, so uh, the other thing that's interesting about this is that Matt's actually an old friend of mine. We went to school together, and we'll be talking about that (laughs) a little bit. Um, So let me read Matt's uh, bio here. Uh, Matt Morrissey, MA, received his master's degree in counseling psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Matt served as director of the Adult Day Program at Full Spectrum Progressive Mental Health in San Francisco, and we'll be talking about what Full Spectrum uh, is. And uh, that day program was a fully functioning alternative to the mental health system. Currently, Matt maintains a private practice where he works with children, teens, and adults. His primary clinical interests include the facilitation of recovery from mood disorders, personality disorders, and psychosis. Uh, With children and teens, his clinical work has focused on such issues as major loss, neglect, and homelessness, and domestic violence. He is the Northern California Coordinator for the International Society for the Psychological Treatments of the Schizophrenia and Other Psychoses, a member of the Society for Langian Studies, the International Center for the Study of Psychiatry and Psychology, and he's on the board of the activist group Mind Freedom International. So welcome to the show, Matt Morrissey. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. And I think what's exciting is your bio um, kind of shows is that you're someone who's really making a name for yourself as a professional, but you really come from it um, from the perspective of a survivor and someone who's been um, been through the experiences. And I just really um, want to say that's really that's really rare, and we definitely need mm-hmm. more of that. So I really I just think it's really great that you're doing what you do, and it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you. Um, so maybe we could just get started. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about your own experiences with whatever you want to call it, extreme states of consciousness or madness, and then kind of how you got you know, involved in working with people who are considered uh, mad or considered to have mental disorders. Yeah, sure. Yeah, probably the best way to start it would be to d- just um, go back do a little uh, do a little kind of background setting. So um, I was uh, I, I did my undergraduate work at Boston University, and I had spent uh, I spent a semester abroad in London. And while I was in London, I, I started to do a lot of self analysis, and through that, I, I started to realize a lot of things about myself, about my family, about the world. And I had a lot of really important breakthroughs at that time. Um, one of one of the biggest breakthroughs was that I, I realized that there, the, that adults did not really know what they were doing. They were trying very hard on the best information they had, but there was really nobody kind of like in control. There was no kind of like wise 
group of people steering us. And I found that to be terrifying. It, it might have been maybe people go through that a little earlier in their lives and have that realization. I was 21 at the time. But um, I also, while it, while it was terrifying, because it was like, wow, you mean this whole, this, this round ball floating in the universe is just kind of like spinning and people are just kind of ramming into one another and it's all one big hurly-burly. Yeah, so, you, so, when, I, so when you say no one is in control, you really mean kind of no one is in control of, of human experience and reality and it's sort of an existential realization that you're yeah, having. Which, exactly. is in, which is interesting because it, it sort of ties into sort of the future of the discussion today because a lot of people who go through extreme states have these very powerful sort of existential what is the meaning of life kinds of preoccupations. So, um, so then, so then what, what happened with, with these, this sort of thinking that you were having? Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and just to dovetail, I mean, that actually figures into to what I went through as, as you'll hear. Um, so, so the, I started speaking up in, in psychology class, um, about things like oppressive things I saw in psychology and, and challenging the teachers. And um, they didn't really like that too much. And I, I probably did it in kind of like an angry tone because, you know, I was a young, angry guy. And, um, you know, it, as much as that realization was terrifying, it also was liberating because it was like, wow, you know, maybe I can, I have a voice here. I can, I can make a contribution. I can do something. I can come up with something that might help help the human might help humanity and I began to read a lot of different things and I, I started to um, you know maybe somebody you know maybe clinically could look at this as like the beginning of a mania per se but it really was more like I was like discovering I was letting go of a lot of anxieties that I had and I started to feel these intense feelings of liberation like you know like wow I don't have to be anxious in a social circle like or maybe everybody else is just as anxious as me you know and like letting all that go and it was just really liberating and when I got back home from London um, I had I had kind of severe jet lag and I kept having these breakthrough experiences and I remember on the, on the eve of Christmas um, I sat up with my mom we had this really deep discussion and we, we just ended up like crying together and and hugging and it was really powerful and um, but what happened was that I couldn't stop my mind from from having these insights and I became I just wasn't able to sleep, and I found that my mind was racing, and I couldn't turn it off. And then I did a really silly thing. I went over to a friend's house, and uh, I smoked some pot, and that basically sent me through the roof. I I, I don't, I've never experienced. I I had a hard time being in my body. The the feelings of of joy and elation were so intense; they were almost painful. And as, I, as that was going on, um, this guy came over and uh, he wanted to form a band with me. I was playing drums at the time and I got really into that idea and I, he found out that I actually had to go back to school and so he said, no, 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 let's, let's, not, let's not do that. And 
I just thought it was such a great idea that I kept kind of like pushing the issue. And to everybody there who, who was witnessing the conversation, they were probably like, you know, Matt, like, stop. You know, he said no. But I was, I was like, no, 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 let's do this. Let's, let's just do it for like a couple weeks. We can make some cool songs. And then one of, um, one of my friends who was there who um, now I realize was basically verbally abusive. He had issues with that. He, he, he jumped in the conversation and really shamed me um, in front of a lot of people. And that proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back. I, I experienced almost like an existential void open up, and I fell through, and it was like all these feelings of terror and panic um, flooded in, and I was so overwhelmed by those feelings. I did not know how to handle them. You know, not many of us do. And I... Um, I tried to call people. I tried to call other friends for support. It was kind of late at night and nobody was around. And then I went home um, and my mom was there and I just kept, I just, I just couldn't sleep. I, my, I thought, you know, and then I began, you know, to, you know, to have what's called delusions. I, and this is how this ties into what I was saying about that excess, you know, this existential breakthrough earlier is that I started to think that, the world was controlled by um, these very evil people who were very, very smart and actually had it all figured out and were actively manipulating the, the world for their ends. And that there was also this good force. There was like a, they appeared to me as kind of like white, like white beings. And they were like kind of like angels, so to speak. They were the people who were also very wise and very smart and compassionate, but who were working to fight the evil people. And you know, I, in my in my in my thinking, I thought people like Noam Chomsky were part of this this white force, um, and other assorted kind of public figures who, you know, who were, who who had shown that kind of intelligence and compassion. And then I started thinking that. I was becoming on that team. I had finally broken through to the realization that that was my future, to be on, on, on this force of people and to find them and, and ally with them, but that the evil people now knew because they were psychic. They knew that somebody had broken through to that and found them out and found out their secret plan, and now they were going to come and get me. And so paranoia set in. And I still couldn't, I, I had been a couple of days, like three days since I had really slept. And I, you know, my family started to get worried because I started to say things that let them on that I wasn't, I was thinking in a, you know, metaphorical um, kind of not normal nature. And um, they eventually um, had a crisis uh, counselor call me. You know, I knew how to deflect that. Um, so I just talked her down and, and made her think I was okay. And then I thought, oh, my God, they're starting to come after me. And then um, a couple hours later, I, you know, I tried to get to sleep. I could not get to sleep, and that really started scaring me. And so I said to my family, I said, okay, I, I should go to the hospital to get some sleep. So when I got to the hospital, my family had, been, had started telling the psychiatrist things I'd been saying, and... Um, they started to 
asked me questions about the things I'd been saying, and and then I knew that um, I was caught, so to speak, like the evil forces that actually succeeded in in getting me. And so, um, you know, and then I initially went there just complaining of trying to get some, I wanted to get some medicine to help me go to sleep. But, you know, I was, I spent 10 days on the inpatient unit. Um, I was in a very high dose of Risperdal, which is an antipsychotic medication. It made me drool horribly. Um, I looked like a zombie. My friends who came to visit me at the time were just like, wow, where, where did Matthew go? And um, the inpatient was just terrible. Nobody talked to me. Um, I was pretty much ignored. I was very frightened, very scared. And uh, then I went to their um, partial hospitalization program, their outpatient program, and that was basically another kind of joke. Um, the staff treated us like we were little little children and, and needed to like manage our stress and learn how like basic living skills. It was very demeaning. There was one 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 staff member there who I, I do credit with um, possibly having really unwittingly turned things, or maybe wittingly turned things around for me because he sat me down in his office and he said, you need to go back to school. And I was like, what, school, huh? Uh, you know, and he said, no, no, no. He said, let's get you enrolled. Let's get you some special housing. Um, he really believed in me. And if he hadn't done that, um, I, I, I'm, I'm quite sure I would have wound up um, being uh, a long-term mental health client, or, or my, my, my stay in, in the mental health system would have been a lot, a lot longer. So I eventually did go back to Boston University, and I lucked out again because I got an, uh, an older psychiatrist through the school who um, let me come off, helped me get off the Risperdal, and I got uh, a very good psychotherapist who also helped me, helped to stabilize me and helped me to work through some of the things that had been going on and um, particularly helped me to take care of some things in my family that were, um, that needed attention. And so slowly but surely, you know, I recovered, but it wasn't really, the, the deepest thing, the most terrifying thing that the mental health system did to me was that they made me feel as if I could not trust myself. I could not trust my own mind because it might happen again. And you have to watch. You can't be too stressed out. And that took about three years to get over, really, that kind of seed they planted. So you started, and, out, by, you started out by really kind of believing what they were telling you just out of your your fear and wanting to understand, and then you, you were slowly got out from under that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, what's, what's interesting, I mean, the, the we had a show, actually, um, previous to this, where I talked with a um, psychologist about cannabis and medical marijuana laws and the relationship between um, pot and people having psychotic breaks. And, you know, it's, it's a complicated issue, but I think it's there's definitely truth to it that if you're in a certain state of consciousness, marijuana can make things a lot worse. And had you had you smoked pot before, or was that your like your yeah. first time you had smoked pot before and you hadn't had that kind of reaction? 
No, no. So was was it fair to say it was some kind of like it like it amplified or just sort of magnified what was going on? Really sort of pushed you over over yeah. the edge. Yeah, and then and then also it sounds like when you went into the hospital, you were pretty clear what the problem was that you just needed some sleep. It sounded like you were maybe three or four days without sleep at that point. If they had just listened to you and helped you with your sleep issues, it might have gone a lot a lot differently than it did. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I you, still think I I still think I would have needed to go to somebody to process what I had just been through, for sure, because ideas like that you know, ideas on that scale, on that grand level, um, I could see I could see me getting stuck there easily, having gotten stuck in this idea that there was the good and the bad and that there was this, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and that they, they were possibly out to get me. I could, and in fact, those ideas did haunt me for, um, for, for, for at least a year, if not more, after even I had gone through therapy and got out, gotten out of the, hospital um those ideas did recur so but the therapy sounds like was able to help you quite quite a bit quite a bit so then so then you sort of pulled yourself back together and then maybe bring us up to date because you went and you finished undergraduate and then you finished graduate school and got a clinical psychology degree and then you went and worked um at a very innovative program called uh full spectrum so tell us tell us a little bit about that and and how maybe your experience with the downside of psychiatry gave you some ideas about how to treat people better. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Full Spectrum was, was started by Dr. Alexander Bingham. And um, Alexander had studied with uh, a very amazing person, Dr. Kevin McCready, who at that time was running the San Joaquin Psychotherapy Center um, Dr. McCready tragically died of, of a sudden heart attack um, at age 47. But um, the San Joaquin Center was just doing the most incredible work, very humanistic, very gentle, very, very compassionate work with people who had a lot of emotional distress and oftentimes had been in the mental health system for 20-plus years and um, and really helping them. and. And, and also getting a lot of like street street cred too of like this is a place you can go where people will really take you seriously and Alexander trained with him and there were a couple of other clinicians who had also trained with Kevin and so they decided to come up to San Francisco Alexander um, comes from a, a wealthy family and so was able to put a big pot of money in a startup fund and um, Alexander was also very concerned that people have a beautiful place to go to because so many of the, of the mental health places are run down, the couches are ratty, um, they kind of, you know, smells and all that stuff. And Alexander wanted a beautiful place. He thought people in distress especially deserved a beautiful, a beautiful place. So he rented out this gorgeous facility in, in a really nice part of town and, and decked it with brand new furniture and hypoallergenic carpet and painted it in earth tones and you come in and you saw this huge fish tank with a shrine and people would say when they walked just walking through the doors they would say my god I already feel calmer and and more relaxed and so that was a big component and then the other component is basically what we were doing with folks was, was psychodynamic psychotherapy but the focus for us was always on the relationship and 
in my own experience, what mattered most to me was the relationships I had. And what was most painful to me was when I felt ignored, ignored or neglected by people who I was around when I was in crisis. And so everything we did at Full Spectrum was about relationship. It was about validating people. It was about hearing people. It was about letting people exist in their own space however they wanted to exist in it. Um, we took the idea of coercion very seriously. In fact, we took it in, into levels that probably most people don't consider. We had one, one gentleman who came for months and, and didn't say a word and sat in on the groups and um, sometimes would fall asleep. And we never asked him to talk or forced him to talk. And, and finally, as a staff, we, we realized that he just needed a place to be. That was our service to him, just, just to provide him a place to come and not to not have any demands made on him. And it turned out that he he recovered. He, he he went back to work. But it was things. It was levels like that where my own my the things that I underwent through through my distress. They really they really helped me to dial in, especially when people would come to us and and talk to us about the treatment they received in the standard mental health system. You know we could believe them, and especially I could believe them, and I could empathize with that, and, and I could provide something that was diametrically opposed to that. Um, so it really, having, you know, you can study psychology, you can know it on a theoretical level, but if you don't understand the power dynamics that are involved in any discipline, but most especially psychology, I mean, Michel Foucault, the great French philosopher and historian talks uh, wrote many books on this this issue. He himself was a psychologist and saw this exercised in the mental hospital where he worked. Um, you can never divorce theory from power, and so you have to be very, very, very careful about power dynamics because so easily you can get into the stance where you know best, you're the authority, because people are coming to you in very vulnerable positions. Did, um, did people, um, so, yeah. Did people come to full spectrum and then um, get off of medication that they were taking? Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, we had one person in particular who came off um, a number of medications. That was, some of the, that was another thing that we would offer, and also that Kevin McCready offered in San Joaquin was um, medication-free treatment. So people could come to us who uh, didn't want to be on medication but were being forced to be on medication by, the, by, by their um, other treatment programs they were in or come to us wanting to get off medication. And while we couldn't, um, we're not, we didn't have a psychiatrist on staff, so we medically uh, we couldn't um, directly help them get off, what we could do is um, we would try and refer them out to a psychiatrist that could help with that, that would take that liability on, and then offer them the emotional support, which is what they've really been needing all along. But especially coming off meds, that's a whole other kind of ball of wax because your emotions are going nuts and your brain, I mean, all these thoughts are surfacing and it becomes so intense and there is a special, there is a definite specialty out there for people who can help others come off psych meds, um, um, help them with the emotional support. 
and these are people who have pretty serious um, things that they're that they're struggling with that aren't really dealing with ordinary reality and really, you know, in the ways that you know ordinary people so-called do. So what I mean, what are some stories of this kinds of things that people people came in with, and how did you how did you really work with them? Well, we had one uh, one gentleman came in who uh, heard voices and um, had been hearing them for quite some time. And um, one of the, uh, you know, one of the first couple of sessions, um, you know, it became quite clear that he was, the the system had stigmatized him for hearing voices. And he had begun talking about that. And I just looked at him point blank and I said, you are not crazy because you hear voices. That does not mean you're psychotic. It means that you hear voices and that that's a special ability. And in fact, there are more people than you think who have that happening to them. And you could just see his whole body relax. And he looked at me and he just said, thank you. Thank you. And this gentleman, when we were closing down full spectrum he had left the left the program and when he we had found out we were closing down he came back to the closing party he made a special point of, of coming back to the closing party and, and he, he he looked at us and he said i just want to thank you guys for everything you've done for me because you've really really helped me and you could see it in his whole demeanor and his whole body um that he had shifted and it was just so touching. You know, people started crying, and it was just, it was really beautiful. Um, and and unfortunately, Full Spectrum is no longer in operation as a as a day treatment program. Is that is that right? That's, that's correct. And that yeah, was a did. really kind of a money thing, that the mainstream system really wasn't as supportive as you guys really needed it to be? Or how, how, did, that, um, how did that happen? Well, we just, I, I don't think... Unfortunately, <laughs> so much in, in, in like alternatives and, and the rebel rebel kind of um, projects, there's not a lot of business smarts, and uh, we really need to stop doing that. We need to really like a couple of us need to go like get MBAs and really start taking this seriously because we think we're mavericks, you know, like the rules don't apply, the money, you know, we're going to magically sort of because of our great work, we're going to magically get paid and, 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 and be able to sustain ourselves. And that's just totally not the case. In fact, you know, mental health services struggle to be funded all the time. Even the traditional mental health services struggle with funding. And um, our initial plan was the Robin Hood approach, you know, um, have some rich people, have some people who don't have money, and it'll all even out. And uh, the business plan just wasn't there, and we never we never did get it to the point where we, where we were even breaking even, and um, we were certainly spending money like it was going out of style. So it just wasn't sustainable right from the get go, and that's unfortunate. That's are really there, unfortunate. Um, are there any plans to try and get uh, full spectrum going again, or to have it be in a different form? Yeah, right now we exist as a loose, um, like a, a referral network. All the clinicians who were there, and I know Alexander is is trying to, to trying to get people to support it, and um, is still keeping the vision alive. And um, you know, it's not that expensive to do one of these programs. I mean, it really, it really isn't. Um, what is special about it is the kind of training that the staff have. Um, that's what makes any place work is the staff, and so. 
you know, you can do it on the cheap um, and you just train the staff in the right way. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, the folks at San Joaquin, um, they, they're still existing down in Fresno and they're still doing wonderful work in Fresno, California. I, I just need to plug them for a minute. They've changed the name. It's, the clinic is now called the Sequoia Psychotherapy Center for the listeners who want to Google that. Um, but, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that something like this can start again um, down the road. It's just not, some, it's not clear right now when that's going to happen. So, Matt, so looking back on your own experiences, I mean, what, and, and then also, because you've worked with so many people and you've helped so many people who've gone through psychosis or madness or extreme states or whatever language you want to use. I mean, what, what's your sense of like, what is it that was going on with you when you started to slip into this other this other realm when you started to be preoccupied. I mean, a lot of us, um, a lot of us do get preoccupied and, and flip out, but, but the, I guess the majority of most of people maybe have some kind of wild insight about, wow, there's, this is going on or the universe is like this, or there's nobody in charge or, and then they don't go that far with it. They don't go into that space of madness that you went yep. into. What, what, what was going on for you? I mean, we're looking back on that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, over the years, I've had all these different theories, and I've tossed this and that and looked at it this and that way, and, and um, it kind of changes. But my current, my current idea on that is um, uh, I had actually, um, my, my mom was kind of um, pretty verbally uh, abusive to me growing up, and, um, you know, my, my dad um, kind of, is a, an emotionally distant person, and um, I think that what happened was that I had a lot of trauma from that, things that were unresolved about that, and the reason why I went into so much detail about the exact moment when that, when that break happened is because that detail is extremely, I think, extremely important in understanding what was going on. I actually think that when my friend was being verbally abusive to me and I was in that state of heightened awareness, what happened was that all those old wounds rushed back. Um, oh, and I should also add that I was bullied at, um, in junior high school terribly, like really, really bad. I ate alone in the cafeteria in seventh grade. I mean, for anybody who's listening who, who, who has had to eat alone in the cafeteria in seventh grade, uh, you can you can imagine the kind of you you know the kind of shame that 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 um, that brings up. And yeah, it's familiar to me. I mean, I had terrible terrible school experiences that would seem yeah. to be a continuation and a amplification of a lot of the stuff that was going on in, at home in the family too. Exactly, and I think that's often overlooked too. Like people, you know, it's like the school system is very abusive. And yeah, the the society we kind of let the society as a whole off the hook, and we yep. kind of want to blame families. And I'm not. I don't yep. want to leave families off the hook too. I mean, especially when, right. when there are extremes like incest or, or rape or you know, physical violence that are happening. But I mean, families exist in a, in a context. And so it's important to kind of look at the whole picture here rather than just sort of being narrowly focused on the family. But I mean, but it sounds like there was also like a, um, a spiritual or a kind of a creative dimension. I mean, you weren't someone who had this trauma and then just kind of collapsed from the trauma or froze 
from the trauma or just, um, mm-hmm. you know, had these kind of anxiety symptoms. You really, it's almost like your, your whole nervous system, like sounds like it just lit up and your brain was kind of on fire and you were just sort of really, really excited and creative and, and energized. And there was, sounds like there was some kind of positive side to it. Like with this, you said really like openness or really sensitive to what was going on around. So, I mean, that's sort of a lot of the mysterious part of what, uh, what psychosis is all about. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I got, when I moved out of California, I, I kind of became interested in the Spiritual Emergence Network, which is a, is a group of, of people who are interested in looking at uh, so-called psychotic states as a, as a possible um, state of, be- of a breakthrough, which, which comes from the work of the Scottish psychiatrist R.D. Lang. Um, and, have you um, uh, have you seen that in your work? I mean, do you think it applies to your experience, or do you do you see that in did you see that in the clients that you worked with in in full spectrum? Well, in my own experience, you know, I have to say that the true kind of transpersonal moment came when I was in London, and you know, I had kind of realized this, you know, that um, wow, this is a big hurly burly. Um, you know, possibly a, maybe an, an insight that is more captured by Eastern modes of thought. Um, and while, like I said, while it was very liberating, uh, it also had a terrible downside to that. Um, and, you know, I don't believe that, I, I believe that the, the, the factors that caused me to, to slip over to the edge of madness was actually... Um, feelings of extreme, it was like I was experiencing what's called, uh, and, and some, some psychoanalytic writers call it annihilation, annihilation anxiety, and I think that that really fits for me. Um, I could not contain myself in my own skin. My emotions were so strong that I felt as if I was imploding inside. And in order to deal with that on a neurobiological level, I believe my mind had to invent something to signify this catastrophe. And what that was was this cosmic battle between good and evil. And coincidentally, that ties in with the work of John Perry, who, uh, who was a Jungian analyst and who worked extensively with people in, in psychotic process. And he wrote, even wrote a whole book about detailing the kinds of images that people come up with in their minds to create wholeness out of what is a fragmentary state. And they're very, so, they're often, they're often these intense polarizations between good and evil. I mean, I know my own, some of my own states that I've gotten into are very, very much about conspiracies and d- diabolical demonic forces operating behind the scenes. And what's interesting is that a lot of, um, a lot of religious prophets, actually, you know, from the Old Testament and other traditions, you know, get their kind of mystical start from these intense visions of good and evil and a polarization of the universe. And uh, it sounds yeah. like that's, a, that's sort of the, you're saying that there is a kind of a trauma that the body is dealing with and an annihilation that the person is dealing with, and then they kind of conjure up this symbolic um, parallel to it in terms of what the thinking and the symbols and the images and the metaphors that they're pre- preoccupied with? Yes. Yes. That's what I believe now. I mean, talk to me 10 years from now. <laughs> right. Did you, did you see that with other people that came into uh, the practice at Full Spectrum, people who were very much 
I mean, I certainly know that, I mean, I've, I've just met a lot of people who, who have, who have that effect. It seems like some of the, um, people who are like the most kind of withdrawn or the most remote, when you do start to talk with them, it's, it's about the Bible or it's about, you know, different people listening to them or the CIA or, um, some kind of voice, voices or demons, or some kind of really negative force that's influencing them. And then you sort of think about it. Well, what, um, what trauma does this correspond to? Right, right. And I think that, the, I mean, we're always active. I mean, it's like, we're all, we're like, a, we're, the psyche is, is an activity. It organizes, it moves forward. The psyche is always act. The, the psyche is always being active, even when we're in the passive state of being a victim. The psyche brings an activity to bear on that experience. And so you'll have four different people who maybe have experienced the same kind of trauma, say sexual abuse or um, some kind of other, uh, other severe uh, abuse, and they all react to it differently. And that's because um, they all, they're all, of course, coming at it from different histories and backgrounds, and they all have different support networks around that. And so a lot of times what, I, what, what, it, what, what is called psychosis, let's just call it psychosis, what it appears to me, is an activity that the psyche has taken up in order to achieve some kind of balance, some kind of safety so that people can live in their own brains in order to organize this mass of chaotic feelings and thoughts and overwhelming, even positive feelings, um, sexual feelings, erotic feelings. And the thing you don't want to do is to try and shame people for having that reaction. And you certainly don't want to make them feel bad about it because that's the way that they've learned, that's how they're coping. And you do not want to take people's coping mechanisms away. And so at Full Spectrum, we would never, we wouldn't really talk, you know, if people wanted to talk about their, their thoughts that would be considered psychotic, we would talk to them about them. And, and, but we would more be interested in talking to them about their day-to-day life and what goes on in their day-to-day life and trying to normalize things. And, you know, people really responded to that, especially with paranoia. You know, paranoia is very, very difficult. It's, you got, people don't become paranoid for, you know, people could become paranoid for a very good reason. And the reason is, is that other people who have mattered very much to them have let them down repeatedly, have hurt them over and over and over again, and have wounded them. And so they have a basic mistrust of other human beings, and that shows up as paranoia. With people who come in with that, kind of stuff going on, it's very difficult. It's very, very hard. Even for us at Full Spectrum, who had the most kid glove, ginger, gingerly, humanistic, uh, validating, affirming approach, because any kind of contact with genuine emotional contact with, with somebody who has been that hurt is on the one hand, they want it, they need it, they know they need it so badly, but on the other hand, it scares the crap out of them. And so we would always skirt this line, and we had some people leave the program who, who had um, some pretty extensive paranoia going on, and we, we finally figured out that um, we, we were trying to be too open 
too quick with them. And it's very hard to gauge that. Um, you know, this thing with um, the Virginia Tech killer with, with Cho, you know, um, he obviously had a lot of paranoia going on. He was obviously very wounded. And then there were, you know, all these calls afterwards were like, oh, we need to have more money for the mental health system and have more forced treatment. And if he would have come into our facility, we would have done this. And there were lapses in treatment. And it's like, no, you know what? Cho, he would have been hard to reach with any no matter how skilled you are, he would have been hard to reach. And maybe maybe somebody could have reached him, but he would have, and maybe I'll just speak frankly, is that Cho would have had to have fallen in love with somebody. And that's a lot of what treatment is in a way. Cho would have had to have found somebody that he could love and that wasn't going to hurt him. And he might have been at the point where it was really hard for him to do that. And I don't, clinicians today, they aren't trained in relationship. I mean, they don't, it's about cognitive behavioral and it's about doing things to people. It's about technique and it's about, you know, there's, there, there's just not an emphasis on the primacy of relationship uh, in, in the system. And we have to start from relationship or we're not going to get anywhere. I mean, medical schools teach that now, you know, the, the importance of the doctor-patient relationship. If you don't have that, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, I like, I like what you said about um, not shaming the person because it sounds like a lot of, um, a lot of your own um, experience, you know, things really kind of got bad for you when you started to encounter conflicts on the outside with the people who were sort of giving you a hard time and then just your kind of positive expanded sort of joyful feelings just twi twisted around and then you were in this really really negative dark uh, place what do you what do you make of the way in which a lot of these kind of breakdowns happen to young people i mean you were 21 and I mean, when I went to the hospital, I was um, 26, and that's kind of like a thing that's kind of said. It's like it's often people in their 20s that really yeah. um, hit hit this experience. Do you think that it's a part of a? It can potentially be a part of a growing process. Do you think it's kind of a residual effect of the the str incredible stress of leaving your family and trying to have to kind of figure out who you are in the world? Or yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I I, um, I have. I'm, you know, um, there, there is no mistake as to why this hits people around the 20s. Um, people are trying to individuate from their families, and um, a lot of times they come out of a family system that behaves in its own idiosyncratic, peculiar way. And some people's family families and family dynamics are actually very peculiar and very idiosyncratic. And when they go out into the world, they've been programmed, they've been trained, all their social stuff is coming from the family. And maybe, you know, maybe their family, um, maybe the family wasn't um, so outgoing. Maybe the family was kind of isolated and didn't have a lot of friends. And maybe that, that kid um, didn't really know how to kind of, you know, get, get into a social group and really make themselves liked. And, um, what happens to them is they get out into the big bad world and they, they become isolated. They become, they become completely alone. And I was just reading something um, the other day about uh, our, the lovely United States, uh, our, our torture practices. 
um, in, in the uh, New Yorker. And, um, you know, one of the things that they, that the most effective torture technique of all time is, is isolation. Um, and that breaks down the mind. And they had said in this article that people actually did become psychotic in these secret prisons from, from the isolation and from a couple of other techniques that they were using. But um, that's extremely significant to me that when you meet somebody who has been labeled with a mental disorder, they're often incredibly isolated people. And that's, no, there's, that's not a coincidence either. First of all, they've got the stigma of having a mental disorder, which in itself throws you right out of the loop of society. It's incredibly stigmatizing. and um, you know, You're thrown out. You're like an outcast. It's incredibly painful. I, I, I know it because I struggled with that. I thought, oh my God, am I ever going to be able to work again? I can't handle stress. Um, so there's that going on. But even more than that, um, these people are just very lonely people, and they, they were been lonely for a long time. And um, it's no wonder why they're still lonely. And it, that's all reinforcing what's going on for them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's really. I think it's really true what you're saying. I mean, I a lot of times people get into a situation where they're really socialized by the system, and they're they're really their only friends are you know their case manager, their therapist, their doctor, and other patients, clients that they see in the programs that they go to. And then, you know, and then there's maybe their, their family. And that's about, that's about it. There's a lot of people like that. And we've created a kind of an underclass, a mental patient underclass in this country. And then there's a whole industry around what do you do with those people? I mean, there's the clubhouse um, movement and there's like day treatment programs, which is kind of just to give kind of warehousing people to some degree and, and, and trying to give them something to do during the day, whether it's a volunteer job or um, something to get them involved. But the real, the real issue of how people got this way and then the socialization and the turning people into that role never really gets, never really gets, gets addressed. So absolutely. I think that's a very cogent way of, of putting that. I mean, um, you know, Larry Davidson, who's at Yale, who has done, phenomenological research into recovery from schizophrenia and just incredible researcher and incredible guy. He wrote a book called Living Outside Mental Illness. Um, And he actually, what he did is he talked with people who had recovered from schizophrenia, did open-ended interviews with them and asked them how they did it. And um, he he called from all that data um, a couple of of really important factors for helping for people who who have finally recovered and um, one of them was tada getting away from the mental health system and getting into a job and a normal life and having other people around you that weren't weren't involved in the mental health system Um, I think you put your you know you put the your finger right on it I mean the socialization that goes on into patienthood that's very pernicious. It's very hard to get beyond that. And, and, and there's a guy um, in Italy who does, who plays um, soccer. He has a team of soccer players, people who have all been labeled with, with mental disorders. And, you know, it's like, lo and behold, um, these people are recovering left and right. <laughs> you know, soccer therapy, great. I mean, 
that's, you know, it just goes to show the power of like believing in people and relationships and the body, having people do, you know, exercise and be healthy. Um, it's not rocket science on one level. On another level, it kind of is because there is, um, people do get into trouble in intimate relationships and it does take somebody to help them sort that out who, who is trained, I believe, and who knows kind of what they're doing. But, you know, beyond that, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. Do you think a lot of it also has to do with getting away from your family? I mean, because I, I mean, I had to really, really, really separate myself from my family and almost, I mean, the way I would describe it is whenever I would be, you know, around my my parents, um, <laughs> I'm thinking about maybe they might be listening to this broadcast at this point, but, but uh, it's like a hypnotic spell is cast. I feel like I'm just being, someone's waving a watch in front of my face and saying, you know, sleep, 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 mm -hmm. or something that I'm going to go into this hypnotic trance. And, um, you know, that, that all the, the person that I was is going to, is going to come back, you know? And I think, I think that was, maybe that was part of the, um, part of my struggle when I was in school, we, I mentioned before that you and I had both been in school together. We were both in a counseling psychology program. You ended up graduating and I ended up actually <laughs> leaving that, that program and not being able to complete it. And I went, went back into a mental health residence and was struggling for a few more years um, after that. But I think that when I look at that now, I think that what was happening to me was, you know, I was a big part of who I was, was really um, under wraps. I mean, I had to really be in the closet and I really didn't, you know, wasn't able to talk about or get much support from um, anybody else in the program. I really kind of had to be a, a different person, be a phony person. And it reminded me so much of being in my family where you know, my experiences were being hidden and I had to kind of put on an act and show up for the family and play by these family rules and not really be in touch with my authentic self. And it just was not, it was like a formula for disaster <laughs> for me. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I was actually very terrified going through graduate school because, um, and I, I was actually sad that you left. Cause I was like, Oh man, Will's leaving. You know, it's like, I really would, you know, I, I was, um, I really wanted to kind of get to know you more and spend a lot more time with you. But, you know, I think you and I, we really could have bonded because I would see how virtually all of the classmates that I was, were sitting in the classroom with me had no clue about the mental health system, had no clue about power, about, you know, uh, well, I, I mean, everybody has an experience of power, but I mean, Power as it's wielded in psychology, it's a very shrewd kind of special kind of power, uh, very special normalizing power that, that is uh, exercised in psychology. And, and I hear the, the teachers say things um, that were very disturbing. And um, I would speak up in class a lot, and um, I was very forceful about my views. And, you know, a lot of the times the teachers just couldn't give me a response because they knew... I was saying what I was saying was true and, and was right, and I caught them kind of, you know, I had embarrassed them a little bit because, I, um, yeah, um, yeah, because you're, you're calling them out, yeah. I was totally calling them yeah. out, and I was actually worried at one point. I was like, my God, are they going to let me go on to clinical training? You know, and then that kind of turned out to be unfounded. I actually found out that a few of the professors there thought very highly of me, um, 
And um, but it was like it re-stimulated all this old trauma. Um, it was really hard. Comes back to what you were saying about um, you know prisoners who are isolated becoming psychotic. That essentially these are human experiences, and it, all of us put in the right situation, the right mix of trauma and stress and um, sleep deprivation and isolation and a hostile environment, all of us can become psychotic. Well, listen, we're about out of out of time, and I just wanted to give people a, a chance. If you um, Is there a website for Full Spectrum that people wanted yeah. to get in touch with you? I know you're in San Francisco. You're in um, private uh, practice. I, I know that you have a sliding scale, and I know you do insurance, and so people maybe who are lower income might need to want to get in touch with you. And also, I think you have a lot of resources and, and information. I know you're involved with mind freedom and human rights activism in the Bay Area. So if people did want to get in touch with you, how would they, how would they do that? Yeah, the best way would probably just be, uh, be my email. Um, and uh, that's mattmore21 at yahoo.com. And I hope I don't get a bunch of spam mail from saying this on the radio, but um, I have a good spam filter. So it's M-A-T-T-M-O-R-R-21 at yahoo.com. And also, um, they can feel free to go to the Full Spectrum website, which is still up and running, and that's www.fullspectrumcenter.com. And that's or I'm sorry, um, fullspectrumcenter.org. And that's all, all one block of letters there. Well, great. Matt Morrissey, thank you very much for joining us today on uh, Madness Radio. Thank you for having me, Will. It's been a pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to an interview with Matthew Morrissey. Matt is a clinical psychologist practicing in um, San Francisco. He's also a survivor of psychiatric abuse, someone who's working for human rights in the system. He has a bipolar uh, diagnosis. And that's about all the time that we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.